I up now? I'm up now. All right. This is really it. This is it. Okay. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, a joy. Um, as for these claims about the Carolina Conference Camp Meeting being the best in North America, just last weekend, somebody told me that very thing. And I've been here before, so I know better than to argue. This is a wonderful camp meeting, and we pray that this camp meeting will be crowned with the blessing of God. Hey, it would be remiss of me not to mention the stunning, the stunning music we've had tonight. I mean, beautiful music. So thank you to our orchestra and to David who played the piano and, and everybody involved here. It's been absolutely wonderful. It's great to be here in a beautiful setting again. Aren't you glad COVID's over? Oh, listen, that wasn't a political statement, okay? I mean, you can barely say anything about COVID without being arrested and harassed. But I'm just saying, it, it's just, I'm glad it's behind, I hope it's behind us. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I'm glad it's behind us and we can be doing the things that we want to do, uh, basically when we want to do them. Fun to drive in here with a, with a daughter of, of the Carolina Conference. My wife, Melissa, was born in North Carolina and grew up coming to camp meeting here at Lake June, Alaska. And uh, it's fun to drive in and she's saying, oh, that's where we went to the children's program and that's the long walk we used to take and I remember this building and that building. So for Melissa, it's a, it's, a, it's a homecoming, and it's kind of special, you know. I have a long connection with the Carolina Conference. Um, I was married, well, I wasn't married in North Carolina, but uh, married a North Carolinian, and we lived here for many years in Rowan County in North Carolina. Both of our children were born here. Uh, my wife raised here. My in-laws were raised here. So we go back a little way with this place. Um, now... First thing I was told when I arrived was, the guy last night preached like till midnight. <laughs> so, uh, and, and Cameron DeVage is a friend of mine, so I'm not, I'm not saying that critically, of course, but that's, but no, he just, he went on and on. And so I think in there, I think in there, in fact, the guy was saying to me, he said, it's just as well, we never had anybody sitting up high in a window because he was thinking of, he was thinking of a Eutychus when Paul preached long. We'd have had to had some resurrection service held. I was, I was wondering if that was a not-so-subtle hint. My wife had an aunt, rest her soul. She had a clock purse. She carried a purse. On the outside of it was a clock on the outside of the purse. And she would sit in church on Sunday morning and when she felt the preacher was going long, she would hold up that purse and point to it like that. <laughs> that is as true as I'm standing here. She would not a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, you would never try anything like that. <laughs> so I was getting the idea that this fellow who told me that tonight would pre appreciate it if I kept my remarks to 15 or 20 minutes or so. We'll see how, did somebody say amen out there? <laughs> security, sec, security, take care of that guy, would you? Yeah, not much chance of that. 
but I can promise you it shouldn't be a marathon tonight. What I will look forward to doing over the next couple of days is sharing with you some of what's happening at It Is Written. We are in our 68th year now. Uh, we're, we're, we're so blessed to be doing what we're doing. It Is Written is an evangel- a media evangelism ministry of the North American Division. It's a, div- a ministry of the North American Division, donor-funded. We kind of have the best of both worlds. We love what we do. We're having a great time. Uh, just recently, a couple of months ago, we filmed some new television programs in England. We focused on the life of George Mueller. The, oh, I've got a great George Mueller story for you. George Mueller had the orphanages. You've heard the miracle stories, right? There they were. There was nothing to eat, nothing to eat. And so he said, children, we're going to bow our heads and thank God for the food he is going to give us. You know that story, right? And so they prayed and they had the blessing and they said, in Jesus' name, Amen. I'm sure he said that with a delightful German accent, for he was a German fellow. And what happened next? There's a knock at the door. It's a great story. If you watch our upcoming television program, you will, also, you will discover it's also not a true story. Isn't that a bummer? That's one of the best stories you've ever told. And it's not true. I was so let down. I asked the nice lady at the George Mueller Museum, is that a true story? Well, no. The banana story, that's a true story. You'll have to watch the program to find out about that. Uh, so anyway, George Mueller, that's a good program. We did a program about, um, about John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. You know, you know that story about John Bunyan being locked in the Bedford County Jail with the rats and the cold and the water and this and that? You, you know that story? That's a true story. Yeah, that's real. And then we did two programs about John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton, famous because he was the captain of a slave ship, and then he wrote uh, probably the most famous hymn in the world, Amazing Grace. It was a tremendous turnaround. Uh, That man was impacted by grace. Anyway, there's a reason we make TV programs like this, and that's because we have a global audience And we pray that as people are impacted by Jesus through those programs, that lives will be touched. Got a letter from a man recently, and he told me some of his story. His wife had died. Uh, He had been a rough kind of a colorful, rough, you might say rough, certainly a colorful character, a hard-drinking man. His wife died. He didn't know what to do. And that's when he came across It Is Written on television. He started watching It Is Written. So what happened was this letter came to me from Idaho, and and not long after that, we were in Idaho conducting evangelistic meetings, so I arranged to meet the man. So I met this fella. He told me he's lost 60 pounds. He quit drinking. He needed dialysis once, doesn't anymore. He had years and years of acid reflux. That's gone. Several other things uh, had taken place, Uh, and all because he began watching It Is Written and started taking on board the council that he saw on It Is Written TV. That's our full-time channel. Uh, He said, I start every day with the anti-aging smoothie. We talked about that in one of our health programs. Dr. John Westerdahl gave the anti-aging smoothie recipe. Just yesterday, I got an email from the other side of the world. Can you send me that recipe? People like it. It evidently works because this man will be 94 at his next birthday. I don't know why a fellow who's 92 or 93 decides he needs to start drinking an anti-aging smoothie. (laughs) 
Most people at that age, at that age aren't buying green bananas, but he's going strong and, and, and everything's just fantastic, but he's going to make sure of that too. The greatest news of all is that that man met Jesus. And during the evangelistic meeting that he attended just two miles from his house, he heard the call, he responded to Jesus, and at 93 and a half years old, this man, full of beans, full of life, full of vigor, and full of love for Jesus, was baptized. What a great story. And he's sharing his faith. And uh, on the last day that the, my colleague Eric Flickinger, who preached that series of meetings, was there, he went to lunch with this fella and his daughter, and he said to Eric, I'm working on her now. I'm working on her. So the circle broadens and God just continues to work. So we love doing what we do and we hope, I hope, I, I would ask that you pray for us because every day, all day, it is written as broadcasting to the world, all day, every day. Our audience is growing. We're seeing wonderful things happening. And what we know is that great things happen not because of smart people or people who think they're smart. It happens because the Holy Spirit works. So if you would pray for that, I would appreciate it. Well, why don't we pray now? and anticipate the blessing of God tonight. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you we can be here in this place. We are grateful for your presence, and we ask that you would speak to every heart. Bless us, instruct us, encourage us, Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Please say with me, amen. This is a love story. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to First uh, Samuel and chapter 18. First Samuel, chapter 18, this is a love story. While you turn, I will begin in First Samuel chapter 18, and verse 1, the Bible says, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Verse 2 says, Saul took him, that's David, that day, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And verse 4 says, Jonathan, this is the son of King Saul, the heir to the throne, took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, <clears throat> even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, in the previous chapter, David, who until this time had been a shepherd boy, had killed the giant Goliath. For six weeks, Goliath had been challenging the people of Almighty God. And it was an untrained youth armed with a sling and a stone and faith in a mighty God that brought the giant down. Jonathan, no doubt, could see in David what he did not see in his faithless father, who was willing to put armor on David, but was not willing to put the armor on himself. He, Saul, should have led his army into battle, but he was a coward, and he did not have the presence of God in his heart. What Jonathan 
could have seen in David was a rival, but he didn't. Jonathan was what his father was not. He was a big man. He was God's man. He was a true-hearted man. And the record reveals that Jonathan was intrepid. Jonathan was brave. Jonathan was valiant. He and David quickly forged a bond that, as we will see, lasted long after they were no longer able to meet together. Jonathan's act towards David was gracious. It was magnanimous. He gave David his bow and he gave David his sword. He may even have given David the very sword that he used in conquering the Philistine garrison. Swords had been extremely hard to come by because the Philistines had prevented Israel from manufacturing any steel weapons. And so Jonathan was modeling kindness and courtesy. Jonathan modeled uh, 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 actual real Philadelphia when he helped David, even saving David's life, imperiling himself as he did so. Saul, in a fit of rage, even tried to kill his own son, Jonathan. But Jonathan understood, friends help friends. He also knew that his father was losing it. If you are familiar with the story, then you will understand that Jonathan lost his life in the same battle during which his father, King Saul, perished. They were on a fool's errand in that battle. There was no way they were going to take down that Philistine confederacy. No way. David witnessed the kingdom suffer great loss, while he himself suffered an immense personal loss. Then, after Saul died and the heir to the throne, Jonathan died at the same time, basically, Ishbosheth, Jonathan's brother, grabbed the throne that David had been anointed to receive. He hung on to that throne for Two years, David waited for 24 months or so before he became the monarch. Then David led them against the Philistines, who the Bible records brought their idols to the battle. That detail is recorded uh, intentionally. God wanting us to know that idols are of no use, only faith in the living God. David relied on God. Things went well for David. The Ark of the Covenant came home to Jerusalem. He defeated Moab and Syria. He defeated Edom as well. And then he had time to reflect. He was now the king. He was established. He was powerful. Israel was mighty. And David could exhale and consider where he had been Think about where he was going. 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, we read this. <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And the Bible says that David said, Is there yet any left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they'd called him unto David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, 
Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. Now consider the historical context. It was customary that when a king assumed the throne, he may destroy the family of the king who had died before him. Particularly if he was not of that family, because he would assume, and rightly, most often, that the survivors of that family would want to take uh, revenge on uh, the, the new king. He had assumed the, the, the relative's throne. We will wipe him out. It wasn't a safe job being king back in those days. You assume the throne, somebody wants your head on a plate. It would be understandable if David had come to the throne and said, I want to kill every last remaining member of Saul's family. But he did not. Instead, he said, who is of Saul's family that I may show a kindness to? Now, he asks the question. Along comes Ziba. He says, there's one fellow. Jonathan has a son. He's lame on his feet. Now, you might think that detail is added incidentally. No, that detail is there because it reflects what was in Ziba's heart. Yes, there's a relative. Saul has a grandson, but he's lame on his feet. Now, if you know the story, when he was little, Mephibosheth's nurse picked him up and ran, dropped him. Don't know exactly what happened, but all we're told is he's lame on his feet. Does that mean he cannot walk? I don't know. Does it mean he walks with a limp? I don't know. What we do know is that he's disabled. And so Ziba, a servant of Saul, says, there's this one kid, but he's disabled. What he's saying is, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. Now, later in New Testament times, any kind of disability or, or, or physical imperfection was seen as the stroke of God. It was seen as a judgment of God. You remember the story, who sinned? that this man was born blind. So the inference was, you wouldn't want to have anything to do this fella. He's not 100%. Listen, this was long before the Americans with Disabilities Act. This is long before ramps. This is long before the General Conference came along with possibility ministries. Now that started as disability ministries, but the wise fellow heading it up said, no, no, we want to call it possibility ministries and so we're looking out for the blind and for the deaf and we're considering the people who are in wheelchairs and so forth we want to make worship a better experience we want to make church membership something that's more appealing than it ever was because we're thinking proactively about people in that situation not back then and Ziba knew it yeah there's this one guy disabled you will have nothing to do with him I am sure now contrary to what a reasonable person might expect David was not giddy upon learning that Saul was dead. He was not exultant. You might think he would be because Saul had made David's life an absolute misery. Now, there are some things that you can learn from the downfall of Saul. I'll keep these brief because there's about a thousand, but I'll give you about three and, we'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep them brief. Number one, jealousy, ladies and gentlemen, does not get you anywhere. And this was a prime motivator, a prime Mm, prime fueling factor for King Saul's 
rampant insecurity. You know, the women were singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. Man, if that's me, if somebody says to me, John, you got the sky working for you, it is written, who can preach the lights out? I'm going to say, praise the Lord, cut the guy loose, let him preach everywhere. Where can we find more like that? King Saul was not cut from that cloth. Oh, no, I can't. I can't have someone in my army running around killing 10,000 people. What a lunatic. He should have been, he should have had David giving all the soldiers lessons in how to take out Philistines. That would have been right. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, there is no point being petty. There's no point being self-centered. You don't want that. You don't want to be one of them small people who pout because you weren't asked to be the deaconess or the elder. You just, if you want to be a deaconess, go be one. Help out. If you want to be an elder, go be an elder. You don't have to be officially sanctioned and set apart and anointed. Just go start visiting the sick. Start counseling people. Start visiting the bereaved. Start giving Bible study. Oh, I didn't want to be an elder that much. No, I understand. Because there's some people, you just want the title and you don't want to do the work. Church has too many people like that. And I say that because even if there was one, that would be too much. We want to do the work. We don't care about who gets the glory. Come on and say amen. Amen. Don't be petty. If someone sings better than you, thank God that person got a great voice. Somebody plays a piano better than you, congratulate them. Wow, that's fantastic. Thank God that God gave you the talent. You know in the parable, Jesus said he gave to one man one talent and to another fellow two talents and to somebody else five talents. That wasn't a judgment call. If you got one, use that one for God's glory. Turn it into two or three or four or five. Just get busy being who you are, using what you got, doing what you do, shining where you are, blooming where you're planted. If I could think of another cliche, I'd throw that in there as well. I'm going to run through the whole cliche book tonight. Let's not be small-minded. Let's give God the glory, amen? Oh, amen. Saul couldn't do that. When God asks you to do something, point number two about Saul, stay in your lane, man. Stay in your lane. Here's Saul. Well, where's Samuel? I don't know. Well, he was supposed to be here by now. So let me offer the sacrifice. Oh, no, no. You don't want to do that. I mean, I don't know which direction I want to take that. I think I want to play it safe and move on. But if God has called you to do something, do it. That's not to say you can't learn new stuff and, and, and venture out here or there. But be sure you are following God's call for your life. That's the key. If you're doing that, then you are in exactly the right place. You want to do that. And then when God asks you to do something, do what God asks you to do. Now, God plays it on your heart. I want to be a church school teacher. Uh, God says, I want you to be a church school teacher. Well, you say, I would rather work in IT and earn three times the money. Okay, you do that, and you will never have satisfaction in your heart. That's if God called you. Now, if God never called you, you go do whatever you want. No, 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 that's not right. You go follow God's leading some other place. If God calls you to ministry, and I cannot believe God has stopped calling young people to full-time pastoral ministry. I can't believe that. I can't believe that. I think it's because so many young people are being called to Instagram and, and whatever got their head in all the wrong places. Uh, come on, parents. You want to, oh, yeah, that kid. My, my four-year-old needs an iPad. Like a hole in the head. 
a hole in the head. Where's your daughter? She's up in her room. What's she doing? I don't know. Where's her phone? Up there with her. And it's a smartphone. And you wonder why your daughter's acting up. That's because you stopped being a parent the minute you said, hey, honey, here's iPhone. Just take it everywhere you want to go and do whatever you want with it. No, 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 no. You got, you got a brain in your head. Use the brain. And you wonder, you wonder why your children are having problems. Now, they can have problems for multitudinous reasons. I understand that. But we wonder, what, what's, wrong with our, what's wrong with our kids today? Well, one of, the things, one of the things wrong with our kids is eat dumb things. That's one of them. Give your seven-year-old an iPhone? Give, if they, no, hey, pastor, pastor, I need to know my kid got in trouble. Give him a flip phone. They work, don't they? How in the world did we survive when we had to run to the principal's office and say, can I phone my mother? Every kid got to have a phone? Seriously. I bet the kids think so. You're wrong, kids. Here's what Saul did. Saul was sent by Samuel down to the Malachites and the prophet told him to kill them all. Wipe them out. Every last thing that breathes, kill it. Uh, he comes back and he says, ah, I've, I've been doing God's will. Look at me. And this is where the prophet says, so what does this bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen I hear, what does that mean? Oh, oh, oh yeah, well, huh. they brought it back. What for? To sacrifice to God. God didn't ask for that. He said, kill it all. Well, that seems mighty harsh, doesn't it? Yes, it seems mighty harsh. God said, kill him old and young, infant and suckling, camel and donkey. Kill them all. Now, why would people struggle with that? That's not what the sermon's about. People struggle with that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure they do. So you, you remember the story of Queen Esther, right? And Haman figured out that he was going to have every last Jew liquidated. Remember that? Haman, you know what ethnicity Haman was, at least his family line? Haman was an Agagite because this dumb king, Saul, was told to kill them all. He said, well, I killed most of them. I killed most of them. He didn't kill a one who ended up being the progenitor of a Haman who came this close to wiping out all of God's people. Listen, when God asks you to do something, if God asks you to do, don't, don't give me this, I acted the fool, but God told me to. Don't give me that. But when God asks you to do something, you want to do it. Whether he's calling you to ministry or he's telling you to make your bed. Children, that was God telling you to make your bed. No question about it. Whatever God is asking you to do, you want to do it. Don't go 80% of the way, 90% of the way. God is telling you to get sin out of your life. Yet too many of us make peace with certain sins and, and, and leave a room in our lives to accommodate those sins. God didn't say accommodate some. He said, get them all out. And the Spirit of God, if you want the Spirit of God to do so, will do just that. You don't have to stay chained to the old person you were before you were converted. You need to say amen tonight. Amen. God says something, we're going to say amen, Lord, because if that's your will, we want your will done. David watched this soul descend deeper and deeper into madness, essentially. But he always, this is interesting. He always respected Saul because Saul was the Lord's anointed. He had opportunities to kill Saul. 
One night he took his sword and his water bottle, swords, showing the king, look at this, I got this close, I could have run you through. On another occasion, he cut off a part of Saul's clothing. Man, I could have killed you, King Saul. The man who had hunted David, who tried to, to, to pin David to a wall using a javelin, a spear, on more than one occasion. This man, this man who wanted David dead more than you want a cockroach dead. This man, David respected him. Have mercy. You know, I don't want to stretch this thing too far, but it would be remiss of me if I didn't stretch it a little. And that is to say this. You know, I, I, I know that, that you have not absolutely loved every, every pastor that you've had come through your church. Don't say amen. Just, just agree on the inside. Just agree on the inside. Agree on the inside. Now, I'm glad we love our leaders here because, you know, Elder Louis has been in that chair for 12 years, Elder Moyer, 16 and a half years. So we've got good leaders here, good leaders, wonderful leaders. You should have said amen to that. Those of you who did not, your names have been written down. <laughs> Someone be by to have a talk with you later. You know what we want to learn, what we ought to learn to be in the Seventh Adventist Church. We ought to learn to be gracious. Here's what I mean. So, so, so the pastor doesn't meet your expectations in some areas. Okay. News flash, you don't meet the pastor's expectations in some areas. <laughs> That's how it goes. That's the way this thing works. Pastor ain't trying to run you out. And we start, we start whispering, a whisper campaign, and we start all of this and that. I'm not telling you that you need, to, you need to just suck up some pastor's foolishness. There's ways to go about that. You call the conference office. or First, you talk to the pastor. You be gracious about it. We ought to be as kind as kind. There are some congregations, and I do not say this in reference to the Carolina Conference because it wouldn't be true, but there are some congregations that are just pastor eaters. I have a friend who went to one, one congreg went to a district. The three previous pastors had all left the ministry. You know why? Because there was one man, I won't tell you his profession, there was one man, and he just made life hell for those pastors. You know what we should have done? We should have disciplined that church member. And then if he didn't act his age, we should have just disfellowshipped him. I'm all for that. Just kick the guy out. You can't be that guy running this church into the ground, running pastors off. Clearly the churches aren't going to grow because with a man like that, new people won't, they won't come back a second time. Let's be kind. If, if David could be gracious to King Saul, I mean, if that was me, ah, dead. But it wasn't me, just as well. And that doesn't just go for pastors. It goes for church members who, who, who rub your fur the wrong way. It goes for that, for that, for that, that, that young girl who gets up front and her miniskirt is so short. You go, oh, I can't look. <laughs> goes for her. It goes for the eight-year-old boys running around the church. Oh, this is, this is God's house, boys. Be quiet. Well, if you, they don't want to come back if you're like that. I'm not saying turn the church into a zoo, let anything go. Well, let's be Christian. When we don't like something. Oh, oh, listen, oh, sorry. <laughs> Cameron, 9.30? That was early. I'm just getting started now.
<laughs> so, how do you enjoy COVID then? Huh? Uh, no, 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 no amening, no nothing. Poker face now, all right? You gotta have a poker face. I don't know exactly where this is going, but we'll find out when we get there. So, so there were people who wanted everyone in the world to be vaccinated. Vaccinate babies, vaccinate everybody. Everybody, vaccinate them five times and boost them up 10. <laughs> and then you gotta wear two masks and a face shield, right? I'm not ridiculing anyone. There's people like that here tonight. On the other side of the equation, there's people who are saying, ah, oh, COVID, it isn't even a thing. There's no such thing. Lunatic, I've been to the funerals. They didn't die of heart attacks. Of course, of course there was a thing. Oh, no, there's no COVID. It's all a government plot. It's all Bill Gates trying to depopulate the world. So you've got one extreme over here, and then you've got people over here who say, I will never wear a mask. Oh, no, I would do nothing. And so what have you got? You've got two factions in the church like this. And so we said, okay, we're going to have one group of people. We're going to sit them in the fellowship hall, and we're going to have another group of people over here. Look, put on the dumb mask. Not because you have to, but because it will keep the peace. Because you will be saying, I don't want to, I hated those things. But man, when I, got, look, I got a friend, I hope he's not watching. If you're watching, buddy, I'm sorry. But he goes, I will get on the plane. He hated masks. Take my mask off and I have a big bag of sunflower seeds. And I'll eat them one at a time. You gotta chew your food 36 times. He's making sure it's all good. And then the flight attendant will be like. Uh. <laughs> I dare that guy to witness to the flight attendant at the end of the flight. I don't wanna know your God if you're a fool. I don't wanna fool around it. You get my point right. We had churches split. I don't know in Carolina, I'm not speaking to your church. I know nothing about what happened here. We had, I've spoken to friends in ministry. So how's your church? We will never recover from COVID. It was that bad. People who left and will never come back. And I don't want you to say, yeah, well, they were idiots. They didn't understand it the same way I did. Well, they were too cautious. Oh, oh just look, at, look at what the media says. Now, I'm not talking about who's right and who's wrong. I'm talking about acting right and not acting wrong. Now listen, in my home church, I'm not the pastor, in my home church, the conference closed us down for I think it was three weeks. We opened up, opened up. There was no mask needed if you wanted to come to church. About five people wore masks. We conducted two public evangelistic series and a mission trip during COVID. Church attendance grew because there were people, refugees from other churches. I go, we, we, we can't go to church where I go to church. There were, there were some churches, if this was you, I'm going to laugh at you. They said, we're not allowed to sing, but we're allowed to hum the hymns. But okay. Are there people 
post-COVID that you can't look in the eye? Are there people who won't come back to your church because how they were treated? Did you burn bridges during COVID? Because your pastor said, look, we got to follow the regulations in the city. Did your pastor get, get beaten up and run out of town? I'm using COVID as a perfect example. We had fine Christian people who showed what they're actually like during COVID. We don't want to be like that. There's got to be a way to pull, the pe- pull people together and say, hey, we're a family and we are going to stick together. We had a family meeting in my house. Man, what are we going to do about this whole vaccine thing? Oh, well, I said, hey, family meeting called four of us. We came together, mother, father, two kids. I said, uh, it's family meeting time. Oh, what's on the agenda? COVID vaccines. Okay. Uh, I said, we have made a decision in this family. <laughs> That's how democracy worked that night. We've made a decision. What's the decision? The decision is this. Anyone in this family can do whatever they want about vaccines. And the rest of us will 100% respect their decision and never call them on the carpet for it. Do what you think is right. We will love you. Man, that worked for us. COVID was damaging for some of our churches. And not because of Biden, not because of Fauci, not because of Trump. They weren't at your board meetings. Not because of the CDC and the WHO and masks and Pfizer. Not because of that, but because how we chose to react to it. Now, if you're in a church that just skated on by, God bless you, but not every church did. Ladies and gentlemen, we got to be kind. Did you ever read the statement that says, It is in a crisis that character is revealed. What did this crisis reveal about your congregation? Thank God it's not too late. We can redeem the time. Now, 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 now. Because it doesn't even matter what I say tonight. This is what you're going to remember. So um, what we've agreed on is I made no political statements. I took no stance. I was not pro anything and I was not anti anything. Can Can we agree with that? I'm, I'm doomed. <laughs> I'm not trying to be pro-anti-anything else. I'm simply being pro-kindness and anti-meanness. And we saw plenty of one and not much of the other during COVID. We can be better than that. Saul was absolutely David's enemy. And here's David asking, is there anybody from Saul's family that I can show mercy to? Like I mentioned a moment ago, it would have been unsurprising if David had just wiped out every last surviving member of the family of Saul, but he didn't. Anyone can be harsh. Anyone can be spiteful. It takes a Christian to be gracious. You know that Christianity isn't just about loving Jesus. Christianity is also about loving Judas. Did you know that? That's Christianity. Jesus said, love your enemies. David loved his. I want to show kindness to Saul's family. Notice there was nothing compelling him to do that. There was no social expectation. There was no societal custom. David wasn't doing it for likes. There was no, there was no uh, social media advisor telling him, hey, David, if you do this kind thing, you'll attract followers. People, you'll go viral. He wasn't worried about any of that. He simply wanted to do the right thing. I told you this is a love story. You'll notice David went out of his way to do this. No PR team involved. David was magnanimous. 
He believed in doing what was right because it's right. Verse 5. David had the son of Jonathan brought to him. His name was Mephibosheth. You can imagine if you were Mephibosheth and, and, and somebody knocked at your door. Hello? Yeah, the king wants to see you. Wait, what king? David. Oh, the king that my grandfather tried to kill on many occasions. That guy. Mephibosheth thought he was doomed. It was over for Mephibosheth. Yep, this is it. The king is calling me to his place. He is going to kill me. This is how things work around here. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of David, the son of Saul, was come to David, he, did I say the son of David? When Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, behold your servant. Behold your servant. Kept his head down. I don't believe he made eye contact. He was being as humble as he could. David said to him, fear not. First thing he said, fear not. David knew this kid thinks he's going to die. Kid, he was a young adult, young man. Mephibosheth thinks he's doomed. I've got to tell him he's not. Mephibosheth, fear not. I'm not here to, to harm you. I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. This was extravagant. He found the grandson of his avowed enemy. And he said, here's a, basically I'm making you a member of my royal family now. You will eat at my place. My servants will look after you. You eat my food from now on. This is going to be good. It was extravagant, absolutely extravagant. He bowed himself. He said, what is your servant that you would look upon such a dead dog as I am? And so David told Ziba, that, 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 that scheming servant, that everything that had been Saul's was now Mephibosheth's. And that Ziba and his sons would tend the land and harvest the fruit of that land for Mephibosheth. So look at this. Mephibosheth, I don't know, maybe he lived in a, in a duplex. I don't know. But now David has said, all the land that your grandfather had, that's yours. And I don't know how you get around, buddy, but I don't even need you to cook food. You let us do the cooking for you. And furthermore, now you have an income stream. Because Ziba and those cats are going to till the land and they will do the harvest. Then you can sell all that and you've got a nice income. Life is sweet for you now. The grandson of the man who repeatedly tried to murder the anointed of the Lord. So Mephibosheth bowed. Sorry, he dwelt in Jerusalem for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both of his feet. What? motivates somebody like David to do this. Now, I told you this is a love story. But you know this isn't only a story about the love that David and Jonathan had for each other, the love that David had for Saul, the, the love really that he had for Mephibosheth. This is a love story about the love of God for a fallen human race. Here's David having mercy on someone who should have been his enemy. He's the flesh and blood of a man who tried repeatedly to kill him, who attempted desperately to foil God's plans, who actually attempted to nullify the express will of Almighty God. David became so completely demoralized by Saul that he ended up seeking refuge with the Philistines. A silly move, a move of faithlessness, but a move I think that we can relate to. He was desperate. This was the mess that Saul had made of David's life. Why then does David go out of his way to show kindness to a surviving relative of Saul? The better 
question is, why does God travel across the cosmos to this rebellious planet looking for people to whom he can give everlasting life? This, friend, is not a small question. If you answer this question accurately or close enough to it, then you will understand your place in the heart of God. God created this world and the world went awry. His children went askew. And when they did, God gave the gift of repentance. He didn't come after them with a stick. He came after them with animal skins to clothe them in their naked state, teaching them that someone would die to clothe them and provide them with righteousness. And that one would be the sent of God, the Messiah, who would be Jesus, the Christ. Sin did such a number on humanity that the second generation of human beings contained a murderer. Just three chapters after the fall, the Bible says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A handful of chapters later, we are told the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Paul described us as God's enemies. He told the Ephesians we were separate from God, dead in trespasses and sins. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said the heart is desperately wicked. But I want you to notice what Isaiah wrote. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts and let that one return to the Lord and God will have mercy upon him and to our God for he, God, will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55 and verse 7. After all we've done, let me personalize this. After all you've done, God will abundantly pardon. How can that be? The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. You know, I read a Bible verse once. It changed my life. It changed my life. I'd read it before. 15 times, I don't know, changed my life. In Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Now listen, repetition. Like that T-shirt, by the way. That's a very funny. We have a lady on the front row. The picture of sartorial eloquence. She is dressed so well. I should have her come up the front, but I don't want to, I don't want to embarrass her. It's a sermon underway. And tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. <laughs> the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Think God wants us to know something? He is merciful. Merciful. He hath not dealt with us after our sins. I mean, we could talk about that all night. Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. Listen to this. For he knoweth our frame. 
he remembereth that we're dust. Oh, God is merciful. He knows what you're made of. You struggle, he knows what you're made of. You fail and fall, he knows what you're made of. He's merciful. You you, you aimed at the target and missed. God gets it. He knows what you're made of and loves you anyway. The Bible says he is merciful. The Bible says the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness upon children's children. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a good God we're talking about here. And so the question is this, what are you doing with mercy? What are you doing with mercy? This is God saying, I could lower the boom on you, but I'm not going to because I love you and I'm hanging in there with you. I'm hanging in there with you. I remarked to Melissa on the drive over here today, if God had not hung in there with me all those years, have mercy. I was as lost as lost could be. But God in his mercy gave me another day, gave me another week, gave me another month, gave me another opportunity. And then when he confronted me and I couldn't miss him, I had to bow low before God and say, God, your way is is better than my way. Your way is right. Your love is perfect. Your son is my savior. The Bible is your word. What are you doing with mercy? The truth is, the truth is we can get accustomed to mercy. You know, it says in the Bible, isn't it in Ecclesiastes, it is because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of man is fully set in him to do evil. Because God, uh, C.D. Brooks put it like this, because God doesn't knock your block off. You may get bold and think that that little sin, which is not a little sin, you're hanging on to it, you're hanging on to it, you're hanging on to it like hanging on to cancer, you think you, you somehow, you accommodate that, back to the thought from earlier, you accommodate that in your life. No, 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 don't trifle with mercy, don't trifle with mercy. If you need to go back to your tent or your camp or your room or your home tonight and fall on your knees and say, God, I have trifled with your mercy, Take my whole heart. If you've got to pray that prayer, pray that prayer. And God will welcome you. The prodigal son was welcomed back into his father's arms. And I'm not saying you're where he was. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a merciful God. But we cannot trample on God's mercy. We must not. We, sh- we should not. We must not. You, you, you may be dishonest and ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit calling you up higher. And before long, you have made some catastrophic mistake. You hear about people who end up drowning in the most heinous sin. They did not start there. They started small with these gateway sins. And then they got to another sin and another sin and another sin. And before long, they're in over their heads and they can barely see their way out. Listen, if it's time for you to turn around, turn around. God in his mercy is waiting for you. You didn't come to camp meeting so everybody could stroke your shoulder and tell you what a great Christian you are. I know better. The Bible says we have sinned, all of us, and come short of the glory of God. Thank God many people are here in a saving relationship with Jesus, but I know tonight there are some you're hanging on by a thread or not hanging on. You're living a lie. Look, we know that that the church lives a lie, but the church believes the lie. What could he possibly mean? Oh, you get it in just a moment. The Seventh-day Adventist church believes the lie. I'm just repeating you what Jesus said. Where did Jesus say that? Revelation chapter 3. He spoke to the church in Laodicea. 
He said, the problem is you think you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But what you don't know is that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's a damning indictment. And Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous, therefore, and repent. He wants us to look ourselves and look at ourselves in the mirror and see the dirt and recognize the dirt and run to Jesus for cleansing. See the faithlessness in our lives and understand that our faithful Savior will take hold of us and he will never let us go. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't, have, we don't have to be dragged away from faith in Jesus. We must not. Jesus died that we might live. Have you considered the cross lately? This is Jesus demonstrating how much he loves us, trying to convince us that everlasting life is worth everlasting life. But if you dabble with sin, if you hang around it like, like something that hangs around something, then eventually you fall in there not knowing that your merciful God would take you in his arms and keep you and give you a new heart and a new life. What are you doing with mercy? It's designed to help you see the goodness of God. We deserve to die, but Jesus died. Have you thought about that? It was so bad on the cross that Jesus... Jesus despaired. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All that sin placed upon him prevented him from seeing through the portals of the tomb. Have you ever been forsaken? Oh, you think you have. No, you haven't. Jesus has been forsaken on a cross and nailed through his feet or maybe his ankles, nails in his hands or maybe his wrists. His back opened up by a what, what we would call today something like a cat of nine tails, a whip with metal bits in it. This Jesus went through that. The physical pain was intense. The emotional and spiritual anguish was a hundred times worse. There he was on the cross, the memory of Judas's betrayal still stinging, Peter's denial, Peter, James, and John falling asleep. Pilate turning him over to be executed, even though he was convinced Jesus was an innocent man. The cross, it was brutal, but it was humiliating. And Jesus was going through all of that for us. You can't possibly think of the cross and not believe that God has a special place in his heart for you. Even the struggling one tonight, even when you only here at camp meeting because, ah, oh, why not? It's a nice place. I went as a kid. I haven't been in 30 years, but I'll come along. And tonight God says, I see you at camp meeting. I'm looking beyond your sin. I'm seeing your heart. I'm looking beyond your failings. I'm seeing your potential. I'm looking beyond your weakness. I'm seeing what your life would look like with Jesus filling you from the inside out. And then there's the rest of us. Oh, we've been coming every year. But has the gloss worn off? Are we getting a little lazy and tired and lackadaisical? Are we getting like, are we getting like that? Witnessing is something somebody else does. Faith is something somebody else exercises. This ought to be living and vital and vibrant. Oh, but I don't deserve mercy. I'll tell you who didn't deserve mercy. That was Mephibosheth. His grandfather was a scoundrel. Peter didn't deserve mercy. Solomon didn't deserve mercy. Paul didn't deserve mercy. Mercy isn't deserved. It's offered us freely by a loving God. Tell you what stung. David is leaving Jerusalem after the rebellion of Absalom gets out of hand. And that scoundrel Ziba 
intercepts David. He says, Mephibosheth has designs on your kingdom. Now I'll be king, he says, Mephibosheth said. David, had that had to stink, had to hurt. After all, I've done for that guy. <laughs> but when David comes back to town after Absalom's death and the rebels have been defeated, Mephibosheth comes out to see David. Not an easy thing for a man who was, and we quote, lame on his feet. But he gets, I mean, did he have a wheelchair? I don't know. Did he have somebody convey him out there? Somebody put him on the back of a donkey? Did somebody carry him? Oh, no. Or did he just struggle up? Maybe he, maybe he walked with, with great difficulty, leaning on a walking stick or something like a walker, perhaps. I don't know. But he got out there. It was difficult. He got out there. And he hadn't trimmed his beard or washed his clothes since David left. This was in solidarity with David. He was mourning. Maybe he was protesting. He was certainly marking this watershed moment in the history of the kingdom and showing he was troubled by the circumstances his patron found himself in. David asked Mephibosheth, why didn't you go with me when I went? He's told because Ziba, the servant, deceived him, spread falsehoods about him. Mephibosheth could have been killed because of what Ziba had done. He said, for all of my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king, yet you did set your servant among them that eat at your table, your own table. What right, therefore, do I have yet to cry any more to the king? Ziba said, divide the land. David said, divide Mephibosheth's land with Ziba. Mephibosheth said, let him have it all. You see, Mephibosheth had been so impacted by David's mercy that he loved the benefactor more than he loved the benefits. I'm just glad my Lord the King is back again in peace. Come to his own house. Nothing else matters. I'm just happy you're back. Nothing else matters. Friend of God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we respond to the mercy of God. I'm not sure what brought you to camp meeting this year. I'm glad you're here. God is glad you're here. <clears throat> but ultimately, you are here because of God's mercy. We are responding to the mercy of God. We're responding to the cross. We're responding to God saying, there's got to be someone out there that I can show mercy to. And today he scours the earth looking for somebody to show mercy to. And so we receive mercy from God, but we want to show mercy as well. And your spouse lost the car keys again. Hey, be merciful. Be merciful. Your spouse did some dumb thing. You know what, though? They were doing that before you married them. Somehow you thought you were going to change them. I mean, yeah, you can change me. You're not going to change them. Be merciful. Children running in the sanctuary at church. Oh, somebody do something about them kids. No, I'm, you know, you've got to be careful how far you take this. But why, why don't you just love those kids? Love them. And, and then if somebody needs to gently suggest that they don't treat the kids like the ball pit at McDonald's, 
then somebody can gently do that. You don't be that crusty old person. What do you do that for? And by the way, if you're a kid, 30 is crusty and old. So some of you all think you're a pterodactyl. You don't want to be like that. Be nice. Be merciful. Salvation isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. Them kids are going to wise up one day. They'll get there. What about the church member that you know smokes or drinks? No, I mean, that's not cool. But, but you know what you ought to do instead of whispering about him? Invite them over. Invite them over. Bring them to your place for lunch on Sabbath. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, if you don't want to do that, then shut your mouth and don't complain about them because clearly you don't love them. You don't love them. Shut up. Simple. Be merciful. The pastor stammered the pastor's way through some sermon. It was forgot, preached the same sermon six weeks ago. It was bad then. It's worse now. <laughs> pray. Just pray. I remember being, I was at, wore a younger man's clothes, and me and a friend of mine were off somewhere preaching for a weekend at a church that was just being gracious. And my friend got up the front and he said something profoundly wrong. It was so bad. And I heard that and I like died a little bit and slunk down on my seat. I didn't want anybody to think I was with him. <laughs> well, I don't remember what it was, but it was bad. Towards the end of the sermon, he goes, Huh, wait a minute. Earlier on, did I say that? Oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. I meant this. <sighs> After the sermon, we were talking to this church member, an older man. He said, you know, I heard what you said, and I knew you didn't mean to say it, so I started to pray. I said, Lord, bring it back to his mind so that he can make amends and everybody doesn't think he's a complete doofus. <laughs> God answered his prayer. Mercy, you know? He could have held up the clock purse and done this, but he didn't. He was merciful. You got neighbors and they've got old cars all over the front yard. Well, maybe that's you, but they've got old vehicles in the yard and their music is played loud at night and oh, it drives you mad. Do you know their names? Do you know when their birthday is? Have you ever invited them to church? Do you care? Have mercy. What about all the lost people that you see every single day? day. I know it's time to stop, but I'll tell you a story. I was watching a guy online. This was, this was Penn Gillette. Penn and Teller. They're magicians and they do stuff. At, they have a Vegas show and sometimes they're on TV. So they're, they're, they're famous in certain circles. This guy is a super atheist. He's like the president of the General Conference of Atheists. <laughs> but he used to be a great big guy. He's the one with the ponytail. That guy. He, he, I, I wrote it down, pause it, wrote it down, pause it, wrote it down. He was talking about a time after a show in Las Vegas. He went out the front of the theater, shaking hands with people. Oh, great show. Thank you. You're the best. Oh, thank you. One man was hanging off to the side. He realized he wanted to wait till last to talk to him. He did. He said, you know, I know you're an atheist. There's something I'd like to give you. Pulled out a Bible, gave him a Bible. Now, I don't know if that's the best gift for an atheist. I don't know. He said, he said, and here's my phone number, my page number, my cell number, my email address. If you ever want to get in touch about any questions, please get in touch. 
He said, I reflected on that experience. He said, I respected that man because he had something that was precious to him and he wanted me to have it. And then he said this. He said, look, these Christian people, he said, if you believe in a hell and you believe that I'm, I'm going to go there if I don't repent, he paused and then he said, listen, if you were standing on the street and a truck was coming for you and you didn't know, he said, sooner or later, I would tackle you and get you out of the way. He said this, listen, he said, he said, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? Hmm? That's an atheist talking. How much do you have to hate somebody, if you know what proselytize means, how much do you have to hate somebody to not share your faith? Listen, we've got to have mercy like God had mercy. We nailed his son to the cross, and he loves us anyway. Hmm? We destroy the world. He loves us anyway. Sin introduced famine and death and suffering and selfishness. He loves us anyway. Can't we then love the lost with something like the love that God loves us with? We must. We must receive mercy and we must model mercy. We must. Jesus is coming back soon. And I'm going to tell you, your neighbor doesn't care about your theology if it doesn't impact your life. Your neighbor doesn't care how right you are if you can't treat your neighbor with respect. Your neighbor isn't impressed by your 28 fundamental beliefs. I mean, I am. Way to go. But your neighbor doesn't care. Doesn't care. If you don't love your neighbor as yourself, we got to have mercy. Listen, Jesus is coming back soon. We can't be, we can't be orthodox Jew Seventh-day Adventists. The orthodox who wear the right clothing and do the right thing and keep the right rules and wall themselves off from so much of the world, not all of the world, but you know what I'm saying. Look, they think they're right and they look like they think they're right. They don't care much about you. We can't be like that. Jesus is coming soon. The church has to be known for being a, a place of love and mercy and ministry and care. We must. We've got to make a difference in people's lives. We have to make a difference in, in communities. We just must. And we've got to let people see what the gospel has done for us. Jesus is coming back soon. The gospel is a love story. And if we can let people see that we genuinely love God, by demonstrating that we genuinely love them, it will turn the church upside down. We're waiting for another program. Mm -mm, this is the program. This is it. The mercy of God, the love of God, received and reflected, and then shall the end come. What do you say tonight? Come on, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven. We thank you tonight that you are merciful, so merciful. We thank you that you are gracious, so gracious, and we are the recipients of your mercy and grace. We don't want to tread on it, trample on it, despise it, disdain it, or even neglect it, but we want to receive your mercy and then be so impacted by it that we demonstrate it to others, even people who disagree with us, even people who are wrong, even people who are disagreeable. We want to be merciful. Father, what we're asking for is a character change, not an overhaul, but a death and a rebirth. Friend, would you wish to experience that? Could your prayer be tonight, Father, let me die to self 
and be reborn in Jesus. If that's your prayer, would you raise your hand? Would you do that? Nobody's watching. I'm not watching. Only God is watching. He would love to know that your determination is to be reborn and demonstrate the character of Jesus to the world. We thank you tonight, dear Lord. We love you. We accept you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Please say with me tonight, amen and amen.